What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackballed. Our guest today, if you have been watching Blackballed for the last two months, you'll know that I have been interviewing several members, ex-members of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. It is a cult. There are 50,000 members worldwide, and they have the noted characteristic of being able to not just oppress women, abuse children, and generally make life an isolated living hell for a lot of the members that are within the cult. But they also have a knack at securing billions of dollars in government contracts and lobbying, at least in the past, conservative governments uh, to say no to things like gay marriage and other conservative social issues like that. And when I started unraveling details of this cult, it started to remind me of a lot of things that were happening in the United States. And uh, I was comparing it to things like Scientology and, uh, you know, the Christian right movement and things like that. And then I stumbled upon an article written by our guest today for the Washington Spectator. It's called Paranoia on Parade, How Gold Bugs, Libertarians and Religious Extremists Brought America to the Brink. And we have the author of that piece today, and his name is Dave Troy. Dave, welcome to Black Belt, buddy. How are you? Hey, James. How are you? Glad to be here. I'm, I'm doing well, sir. Thank you for coming. I read this piece, and I, I'm, I'm encouraging everyone to go to The Washington Spectator or, and, and, and to look at it and to read it and to read it thoroughly and then read it two or three more times. It is painstakingly detailed. And it chronicles it chronicles the religious right and how they've fused together themselves and their business interests with politics ever since I believe it's like the 30s. Since yeah, Roosevelt. I started in around 1933. You can go back further, but that's kind of where I picked up the story because it, it kind of has a logical beginning and end. And you, you, the footnotes are, you know, like you, you were very thorough. I'm sure editors were all over it, and lawyers and everything else. And can you, um, for those of us who have, for those of uh, like the, our listeners who haven't read the piece, can you just sort of give us a, an elevator pitch on kind of what you mean by uh, the, the the paranoia part, especially? But how is it that they operate the religious right and politics and big business in the United States? Yeah. So, um, you know, really what the piece focuses on is uh, the reaction to uh, Franklin Roosevelt's responses to the New Deal. So if you think about the Depression, um, you know, which uh, really gripped the world uh, in between World War One uh, and Two, but particularly after 1929, you know, every country was sort of grappling with how to deal with uh, this, the instability that was kind of left in the wake of World War One. So in Germany, you had massive inflation. You had, of course, um, you know, the rise of the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, the fall of the Tsarist government there. Um, Italy, you had the rise of fascism with Benito Mussolini in 1918 to 1922. And um, really, each of those countries kind of represented a different response for, for responding to this, you know, crisis. Um, you know, Italy, of course, responded with fascism. Uh, Germany responded with national uh, socialism, which is not really socialism, but, you know, the rise of Hitler's uh, organization. And then in, you know, Russia, you had the rise of communism. And so what people in the United States and, you know, in Canada, to some extent, too, were grappling with was which way do we want to go? You know, do we want to go the fascist route and be more like Mussolini? Do we want to emulate Hitler in some way? Do we want to... Um, you know, pursue the, the model that the Soviets had. And so what ended up happening was, is when, when Roosevelt implemented the New Deal in 1933, a lot of big business people thought that his response was essentially communism. And they basically branded him as a communist, even though there's really no comparison between the New Deal and, say, you know, the seizure of personal property in, uh, in the Soviet Union. A lot of people saw that. And the main reason for that was because 
Roosevelt started to move away from the gold standard. And the gold mm-hmm. standard was the idea that a certain amount of dollars could be converted to a certain amount of gold consistently and that um, effectively money is gold. So that's kind of where this ball gets rolling. And then it has an overlap with the religious right. The religious right isn't really all of it. It's, it's a lot of libertarian ideas around money and monetary policy that then get sort of grafted onto the religious right because they realize it's a useful tool for manipulating populations. So that's kind of where the story gets started. Yeah, I, I was in my early 30s, I think, when Ron Paul ran for president. Right. And, you know, I, I was one of those people that I actually felt positive about his campaign for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons was because, and I didn't know any of this history, right? So right. Uh, pardon me if I if I was naive back then, but th- yeah, there were certain I things that overlapped. What's that? I think many people were naive. I certainly didn't know all this stuff until I started looking into it. So, yeah, but the but the refreshing thing, and this is going to sound strange to a lot of people, but was that there were certain issues that overlapped between progressives and libertarians, like, um, and they and they came at it from completely different starting points. Um, right. So, you know, the left is anti-war because they don't like people getting killed, and Ron Paul was anti-war because he didn't believe in an interventionist foreign policy. Fair enough, but also they didn't want uh, to be taxed to pay for it was one of the main right. drivers. You know. Right. But but nonetheless, I was pretty happy about that. I, I didn't mm-hmm. really care how he got to the anti-war position sure. or or the um, you know, he wanted to abolish the war on drugs. And I was like all for this guy. So I was thinking to myself, this is great. And then he started talking about the gold standard and I started scratching my head because I. Yeah. I, I didn't really I couldn't really listen. I'm not I'm not qualified. I, I'm not a banker. I have no idea how the, how the monetary system works. If you really want to know the truth. But the gold standard just seemed like a very cowboy thing to say and um, or an out of date principle an idea. Right. Um, was there was it always a ruse for the libertarians and the liberals uh, to sort of share ideas where one side would start thinking better about the other because i'm thinking about that and also occupy wall street where it seemed like those two parties those not parties but those two crowds or whatever you want to call it got together and agreed on things yeah so this is sort of an ongoing undercurrent with a lot of this research is that you know there's an overlap between kind of the far left and the far right and um you know, a lot of us researching that space call that the red-brown alliance with red referring to, you know, sort of fascism, I'm sorry, communism, and then brown referring to fascism, like brown shirts and red shirts, that kind of thing. Mm. So, um, you know, it uh, there is utility sometimes for the far right and the far left to kind of gang up on the center, if you will, um, because, you know, the center is seen as being kind of... Um, uh, you know, the the bastion of the establishment and, you know, the current global war- world order based on nation states that sometimes go to war and all of that. And so to the extent that, like, that's not going great, <laughs> you know, yeah. there are problems sometimes in that uh, world order. Uh, it, it's helpful for the left and the far left and the far right to kind of get together and bash the the, the ex- establishment with the goal of, of really countering uh the the current world order and you know you can argue that there's some utility in that however you know what you kind of end up with in practice is what some people call horseshoe theory where you know the left and the right are sort of so far out in the wings that they agree you also end up with these kinds of uh strange bedfellows so for example you know you've probably people your listeners have probably heard of noam chomsky speaking recently about you know his love for Donald Trump's foreign policy, which is very pro-Russian and non-interventionist and all of that. So, um, you know, it it creates these kinds of strange uh, alliances. And uh, that's actually outlined in a lot of um, what I would call fascist theory. Um, you know, there's uh, people like Francis Parker Yockey, um, and uh, Dugan and Evola and Elian and Bakunin. And there's a whole list of, of philosophers and thinkers who have really formulated the world in terms of this um, anti-establishment, uh, you know, creating this red-brown alliance against, against the establishment. And, you know, un- embedded in all of that is a lot of chatter around um, 
you know, like Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the idea that the establishment is, in fact, a giant Jewish banking conspiracy, which, you know, is kind of gets into some really nasty stuff that animated a lot of uh, very negative 20th century history and um, is, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories and whatnot as well are based on that. So, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack here and there's some things that are true and some things that are not true. But the one thing we can't do is kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, stick our heads in the sand and uh, try to make it just go away. We kind of have to grapple with it. Do you think that sometimes that um, critics, like, for example, Chomps, Chompsy's been on the show twice and both times that I had him, I, I, I find talking to him really interesting because he's obviously super smart. He obviously knows his, you know, knows his information and then comes at it from whatever, you know, uh, from from the Chomsky narrative, I guess you, you could say. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think that his um, stance uh, on on the Ukraine Russia thing is like pro Russian. It's just not pro Ukraine to the extent that everyone else seems to be. Um, is that a fair characterization? Because I feel like polarization always finds its way. So if you if you disagree with uh, uh, or if you're not waving pom poms for Ukraine, then you must be on Russia's side. I mean, yeah, does that I mean, happen I a think, lot in I think it's Sorry. it's what's weird about his formulation of it is that he explicitly needs to make it about agreeing with Donald Trump. I find that strange. You know, at the end of the day, um, that's a weird way to to frame whatever you're going to frame, and also. You know, I mean, Chomsky uh, was, you know, partnered up with this uh, National Taxpayers Union group back in 1972, which contained, you know, some of the most far right people uh, that you can really find. You know, there's this James Dale Davidson and then the guy from uh, Human Events, um, which is now employing Jack Posobiec. Um, so, you know, I, I almost think that you have to look at somebody like, Chomsky is a little bit of an outlier in his own kind of vein and, you know, evaluate who he's associated with, what he's associated with him over time. I mean, I'm empathetic as anybody to the, um, uh, you know, kind of anti-war position and, and trying to minimize harm. And I, you know, I think that frankly, uh, any uh, complaints around NATO expansionism are really misplaced and totally misunderstand um, you know, the real motivation for this conflict, which we can get more into later. Um, but it's not as though uh, if NATO had somehow or another magically been, you know, constrained that Putin wouldn't be doing this. In fact, he'd be doing more of it. And to think otherwise is foolishness. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a mind game for me because, you know, as a person who's uh, I, I would consider myself somewhat an expert in domestic politics. But once you get to the European Union and you start talking NATO and Russia, I can't sit there and pretend that I know what the answer is. Uh, I do see the argument of, um, you know, NATO's, uh, you know, infringement on, uh, you know, building bases that get closer and closer to motherland. Right. I mean, that is an argument. It just happens not to be one to which Putin would be responsive. That makes no difference. They're just using that as a rhetorical cudgel to try to, you know, browbeat the West into submission so that they can go on their, uh, you know, uh, campaign of terror, which they've chosen to pursue. Fair enough. Um, now, back to the uh, we, we were talking off air a little bit before the show started and you were talking about the network um, that exists. It's like a global network, basically conservative groups, either religious groups, big business, political think, t- think tanks and things like that. And um, one thing that I wasn't aware of was that human events recently purchased the post millennial. Yeah. Or is about yeah. to. Um, I used to work at the post millennial. I remember what it was like when I started there versus what it's like now. And it's not like it's night and day. It was always typically kind of right wing i was sort of their token moderate because they Mm -hmm. don't have any left wing writers right so (laughs) but the way that the network works i I think was bill maher i was watching and this was like years ago and he was marveling about how conservatives always seem to get the talking points at the same time no matter where they are in the country senators congressmen you know um uh you know even media personalities all seem to be singing from the same song sheet yep why and how is the network so well oiled and organized like that? Well, I, you know, I think it's important to try to not, you know, cast 
I don't know, a tribute to brilliance, what can be better explained through just, you know, kind of uh, basic coordination. Um, but, um, you know, I think that uh, they have done a pretty good job of establishing a kind of networked uh, insurgency strategy. And so you have people like, you know, Bannon, Flynn, uh, Trump, um, you know, Roger Stone, all of the sort of people that are people's names that they know, they end up kind of creating messaging that then trickles down through this network um, into other channels and ends up in places like Joe Rogan and coming out of the mouth of Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey or whoever, you know, the person of the day might be. And um, so it ends up kind of creating this unified chorus. And obviously, you know, you've got the anti-woke kind of messaging and the school boards and all of that kind of stuff that's percolating through right now. But, you know, so much of it, the way that I've come to think of it isn't so much in terms of these little temporary political battles, which kind of are ephemeral and go from day to day. All of it maps onto a few key fronts. And, um, you know, really the, the ones that I've identified are currency, um, borders and nationalism, um, uh, you know, military identity, uh, traditionalism and energy are probably the, you know, key ones. And um, you can take pretty much anything that's being coming through this network and map it onto one of those four key fronts and try to understand then what they're trying to do with that messaging. So for instance, the anti-LGBT stuff is all feeding into traditionalism. And, you know, the reason why it's important to understand the traditionalism part is that, um, you know, they, they really see democracy as something that subverts hierarchy, that perverts hierarchy, that somehow or another, you know, nature provides a hierarchy and there should be winners and losers and there should be rich people and poor people. And democracy tries to invert all of that. So anything that they, that democracy does that tries to sort of get in the way of um, traditionalism uh, is something that they want to try to fight and, and to try to restore traditionalism. And their belief is that, you know, hierarchy uh, and monarchy and uh, patriarchy are all natural things that should be happening. And, and that can actually help us evolve because it means survival of the fittest and all of that to them. There's a big eugenics element in this. And so they see democracy as something that perverts all of that. And so democracy must be destroyed in order for that all to proceed. Is there a split among the right between the what we used to call neoconservatives and the new sort of mega generation? Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, it's, you can pick a lot of different ways to kind of slice and dice the uh, the right these days. I mean, the first distinction that I would make is that there's a lot of attention paid to kind of the religious right and to Christian nationalism. And I would say that that's a subset of what's going on. It's certainly a big subset, but it is just a subset because if you think about people, you know, who are of the libertarian right persuasion, they do not care about religion or Jesus or Christianity in any way at all. They simply it's, don't. That's what their they best want quality. Is, well, yeah, you know, and that's just, what they really are after is, is economic freedom. Um, and so, uh, you know, to the extent that there are religious groups, some of which are sort of conventional Christian groups, some of which are uh, cult groups, some of them are new age groups, some of them are, you know, various kinds of other spiritual practice that have said, hey, we agree with this fascist agenda, we want in. They're like, cool, come join the party. But I don't think that it's, you know, reasonable to kind of say that it's, it's just a matter of Christian uh, nationalism, because at the end of the day, they don't want to implement a theocracy. Uh, you know, maybe there's a few that do, but mostly what they want to do is eliminate the federal government, at least in the United States. And I think the same is true in Canada. Um, and they want to, if there is government, re replace it with local county-based uh, sheriffs whose only function is the protection of private property. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the direction that they want to go in and out. Yeah, sure. You know, maybe there's a small faction that really, you know, wants to, um, uh, implement some sort of theocratic rule. But at the end of the day, if you don't believe in the institutions of the federal government and the idea is to remove the administrative state, which is to use their words, then, you know, you don't have any use for those institutions. You're not going to take them over and run them. You're going to freaking eliminate them. And that is the goal. So, um, you know, in terms of um, 
you know, the, that used to be called older... Star of the Beast, right? That used yeah, to be. Yeah, well, like, this, is, yeah. this comes from Grover Norquist, you know, among others, mm-hmm. uh, who, and also the people at the National Taxpayers Union with whom Chomsky was working. Um, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, really wanted to eliminate the federal government. And as Grover Norquist said, you know, to make it the size that you could drown it in a bathtub um, and then eliminate it. And, um, you know, some of them remarked here that it's about concentrating power. Um, yes, it is about concentrating power, but it's w- about concentrating power in a feudal context, in a non-state context. Um, if anybody's had the chance to watch um, uh, the Anarchists documentary that's presently on HBO, uh, they've aired five of six episodes so far. It's about the uh, evolution of the Anarcopulco conference in, in Mexico and the participants in it. You know, it just is the usual thing where like people that think that they're all about anarchy end up uh, either devolving into like this Lord of the Flies uh, based chaos or, um, you know, they end up in some kind of um, authoritarian situation because con- the power becomes concentrated amongst people who already have power or can gain it more, more readily. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing as always. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the sort of older school, you know, neoconservative. I would also differentiate the neoconservative kind of, uh, you know, Paul Wolfowitz types from, you know, maybe the, uh, you know, previous generation, you know, the Richard Nixons and the, uh, you know, George H.W. Bushes and Gerald Fords and whatnot, who were considerably more moderate than the neocons. And then you've got this current batch, which is really what we're really seeing is the elimination and the subjugation of the old GOP and the replacement with this kind of far right libertarian ideology. I mean, the libertarian party could not get traction on its own. They basically, the only way they could get their agenda complete was to take over the Republican party. Yeah. Um, and I find it interesting. I, I, do you think that the left um, has made it easy for them in the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a variety of missteps that I think that in retrospect are very easy to see. I think in in the moment, it might have been harder to see it because, frankly, you know, things were kind of chugging along and things seemed okay enough. And a lot of people were very energized by the election of Barack Obama and felt like that that was a, uh, you know, real watershed moment. And in many ways it was. But, you know, one of the things that I know from talking, you know, like with the DNC and know people that have been involved over there is that uh, there's never been a very good long term strategy kind of put in place to um, manage the party's goals between presidencies. It basically, you know, this was described to me by someone at the DNC as basically running like a pop up shop that kind of, you know, gets going every four years and then ramps down again and not very much is institutionally retained between one cycle and the next. So for example, uh, you know, when Hillary Clinton, you know, ran in 2008, um, you know, and then Barack Obama ended up getting the uh, nomination, uh, you know, he kind of came in to the DNC, put in all of his own people. uh, They kind of did their thing. And then, you know, after uh, 2012, they kind of left. And there wasn't a lot by 2016 that had been retained from that experience, despite a lot of lessons learned. Now, granted, I'm sure the overall democratic ecosystem gained some assets and new, you know, online organizing capability and stuff like that. But I think the complete lack of awareness of the global war that was being waged in the information space starting in around 2012, but really ramping up in 2014 into, uh, you know, 2018, um, I think that uh, the left was just completely taken off guard. The idea that Russia would be interfering in urban conflicts in American cities. I mean, I was living through that in Baltimore. And uh, at the time, it was kind of inscrutable. And nobody believed it even at the time. And now we look back on it and go, well, yeah, actually, that was what they were doing. And, you know, what we realize now is that this war in Ukraine, you know, certainly started in 2014. But you could argue it started well before that as well. And that, you know, the information war uh, pre predated the kinetic warfare by a good bit. So um, I felt like in true American style, uh, the Russia problem was uh, underblown by the right and overblown by the left. I couldn't watch NBC, uh, MSNBC anymore when the when yeah. Russia gate was happening because I was just 
you know, I, 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 night after night, Rachel Maddow would make all these startling claims and then that would be it. <laughs> like you would never f- see any follow-up, you know, whether right. or not all these assertions were true, that dossier with the P tape and everything else. And I feel like th- th- that's why I asked you about the left, uh, you know, how, how, how much credit they deserve for the rise of the right, I guess you could call it. And, you know, and, and the, and the priority of, uh, social politics. I hate using the term identity politics because it's always attached to people like Jordan Peterson and people get distracted, but basically the same thing. And, um, you know, I'm always reminded by, I think it was Van Jones uh, that went to, in 2016, before the election, went to middle America. I can't remember what state. And he was talking to a family that had voted Republican generation after generation. And he said, you know, uh, they don't seem to represent your interests. Why do you keep voting for them? And the guy said, he's like, um, when NAFTA happened, five years later, our factory was shut down. And we had uh, a senator, a Democratic Senate candidate come here two years ago uh, during the midterms and talk to us about pronouns. Right. And I think that just completely captured what I think the main problem with the Democratic Party is, is that while like the right in your country, it, it just seems so much better organized. You know, they they, they, well, they seem to I know how have to a rally much, their troops better. Yeah, I think they have a, a better idea of how to actually capture electoral victory. Uh, and, you know, that involves saying the right things at the right time to the right people just to get them to, uh, you know, actually respond. And sometimes, you know, that involves getting them very angry and telling them misinformation and all of that. But, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you identify a key problem there. I mean, for me, even the frame of left and right is pretty... Um, uh, unhelpful in many ways, mm. because what it tends to do is to uh, convince us that there is this like giant football game being waged between two teams and the two teams have to dominate one another. And that the only way that happens is if, you know, one team can somehow or another get an advantage over the other and, you know, win or whatever. And yeah, you know, there's that element that's going on, but there's this much broader information ecosystem that functions much differently from that. And what, we're really up against is this authoritarianism versus uh, democracy axis. And there are information sources that are geared to the left that draw people into authoritarianism. There are information sources that are, you know, geared toward people on the right that advance them into authoritarianism. And there's very little being done on either the left or the right, you know, and when I say that, I mean, targeting audiences in a very cynical and practical way on either side to bring them into the democracy fold just simply isn't happening. And so what we end up with is a constant, uh, you know, draining of people from what amounts to the democratic fold into this more authoritarian fold and they don't even realize it's happening because they're going left and right you know like it's much much worse than that and it's it just functions totally different so i'm working right now on a big web mapping project to really show how uh you know those information environments function and how they're interrelated and um you know just how much effort is being put into peeling people off of mainstream information environments and consensus reality into stuff that will make them much more supportive of autocracy. Yeah. You know, I I thought that, um, and everything that you just said makes perfect sense to me. And um, I want to frame it like this because just to get back to the 2016 election, just for a second, I thought the greatest takeaway from that election was when you found out um, in exit polls that like millions of people who uh, voted for Donald Trump or supported Donald Trump, uh, their second choice is Bernie Sanders. And I was thinking to myself at that time, that is like where the Democrats need to concentrate their efforts on is to try to win over the people that would have voted for the farthest left candidate that, that they could have produced because that you know, that was their second choice. Like they seem like opposites, but, but they both kind of spoke to blue collar people in their own way. Um, full disclosure. I think Trump is a rodeo clown. I have no fucking idea how your how America elected him. I, I mean, I'm no, sure it was a near, narrow me. thing for one thing. Right. Um, or how he could even become close. But, but I found that to be the most valuable data point that you could take away from that election. 
and it seemed like they just completely ignored it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a lot of internal hand wringing over that exact issue during the 2016 for the Demo- you know election for the Democrats. But at the same time, there were also so many um, really harmful information operations that were underway at that time to try to create a split between uh, you know kind of the Bernie crowd and the Hillary crowd, and to um, you know sort of. Uh, bring those differences into very, very sharp relief to the point where there was a lot of animosity between those camps. And so, um, you know, what I would, what I would kind of suggest is that we were well past the point where this was about policy. Um, and in, it was much more about the personalities and the tribal differences, the in-group, out-group tensions between people who were identifying as Bernie supporters and people that were identifying as Hillary supporters. And that was the goal of, of these information operations. Um, so, you know, that that's really a very explicit kind of strategy that, say, like the um, Red-Brown Alliance architects you know, the philosophers, you know, like Yaki and whatnot, you know, who died in 1960, you know, advocated stuff like that. And, um, you know, so this stuff predates what actually happened by a long, long margin. And I think that it's helpful to go back and understand how these kinds of philosophies played into, you know, what would have happened. I don't think that if Hillary had come out and said, you know, just carbon copied everything Bernie Sanders was proposing that it would have made much difference. In fact, no one would have believed her. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It might've made things worse for her because she would have come across as disingenuous. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a very impossible position to be in. And I think, you know, the other thing you had with kind of the far left um, at that time was a mix of good faith and bad faith actors. Um, You know, uh, there were people, you know, just to pull somebody off a hat out of a hat, you had people like uh, Cassandra Fairbanks, who was a big Bernie supporter and then turns into a huge Trump supporter when uh, Bernie dropped out. And like, OK, well, we know now that she's just a big Russian propagandist. And so why was she doing that? All right. Well, let's think about it. You know, like and, you know, is Bernie Sanders himself some kind of Russian agent? I tend not to think so. But he's unhelpful in a lot of ways in this in the structure of things, because he has been helping to create this, um, you know, kind of red brown, um, you know, tension and, you know, red brown alliance against democracy. And, you know, he could be a lot more helpful than he's been. Um, So, you know, it's it's complicated. I don't mean to demonize any, you know, one person here. It's very complicated. There isn't just one enemy. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of complicated forces at work. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. So when you say Russian propagandist, um, you know, like I, I see a lot of people, uh, a lot of names being thrown into that arena. People like Glenn Greenwald. Isn't he just snarky and um, and a little bit of an outlier? Like, wh- why are people saying that he's like basically working as a Russian asset? Well, I mean, he's been uh, echoing Russian propaganda continuously for something like seven years. Um, or more possibly. So I think you can make an argument that whether he is getting paid by Russia to do that explicitly or whether he's just doing so on his own out of his own volition, uh, Mm. you know, he is a uh, useful uh, voice for Russia and has been consistently. Uh, He has not backed off from uh, repeating their assertions, um, I think, even once during that whole period. But is there any like I mean, there has to be something that Russia might say that they're correct about. Like, I'm, I'm one of those guys that there's no all or nothing. Right. Like, like there's 
is NATO a little bit too aggressive? Um, maybe I don't. You know, like like do we have to say no because Russia says yes? Like I'm, I'm just trying to feel. So like I think know. this this involves a much more nuanced understanding of how language is used coming from authoritarian regimes. Um, the first thing you have to recognize about you know a, a regime like Russia is that when they say things, they don't they're not speaking in terms of statements that can be evaluated factually or you know, not, you know, that's really not their concern. Their concern is the effects on the target population. So the issue is who are they, what are, who are they speaking to and what are they telling them and what effect do they hope that it'll have on that target population? Now, it may well be that some of the things that they say are true sometimes. Some of the things they'll say are false sometimes. Some of the things are in the middle. Uh, but the issue is what effect do they hope to have on the target population? Because that is how propaganda works. And that is how you have to run communications in an authoritarian regime. It's called instrumentalism, treating language as an instrument, not so much as a communications tool or something that helps to convey fact or to draw, you know, critical reasoning or whatever. It's just simply a cynical play for how do you manipulate an audience to get them to do what you want them to do. So that's why I never evaluate anything Russia says in terms of factuality or anything. It's just a question of who are they targeting and what do they intend to affect on that target population? So like the Bush administration. Well, I mean, you know, all administrations. I'm not trying to have, be a dick, but that what no, you just I'm said saying, reminded me of. But I'm saying that there Cheney, are you know? that is something that has been dipped into at various times by different uh, groups. I would argue, though, that there is very, very little c comparison between what the Bush administration did, even in its worst moments, uh, and what Russia does on a daily basis, just because Russia has operationalized that as its normal mode of business, as where I would argue that, you know, at times, uh, various aspects of, you know, the U.S. administration has had to go there or felt it had to go there because of circumstances or whatever. But it's explicitly not our policy. If you actually look at, um, you know, what U.S. policy is, especially today on, um, uh, you know, propaganda and communications, it is the U.S., you know, State Department and CIA policy that we, you know, should be in the business of speaking truth and that we don't need to resort to speaking uh, lies or manipulations or towards instrumentalism because, you know, in general, we've got the truth on our side. So that's, you know, the, the explicit policy of, say, Voice of America or Radio Free Europe and, you know, other channels. Like, we, we do not use those in an instrumentalist way to achieve uh, outcomes. They are used, you know, as channels to share stuff that is true. And, you know, we hope that that has a good effect on folks. Right. Okay. Let, let, I want to get back to your piece a second because there was a doo -doo 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 -doo, there it is. I'm just going to read this uh, excerpt and then I want to ask you a couple questions about it. Sure. Uh, when Teal said, this is Peter Teal in 2009 at a Cato Institute event, I no longer believe my logo is covering it up, um, that freedom and democracy, I believe it says, are compatible. Yeah. He was drawing on the same strain of reactionary thought that had initially animated the American Liberty League. Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, Rod D. Martin, and Reid Hoffman joined forces with Elon Musk and others to build PayPal, which, is original, which was originally intended to fulfill the digital cash vision proposed in the sovereign individual. In the 1930s, Musk's grandfather, Joshua N. Haldeman, headed a branch of the tech, technocracy movement in Western Canada. After the war broke out, the organization was declared illegal on grounds that it sought to overthrow the Canadian government. Haldeman was arrested for his involvement in 1941 and subsequently disowned the organization. You are teaching me about my own country, and I would like to know if you can just expand on that a little bit, because I was completely shocked to see that in there. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing is, you know, you know about PayPal and, and mm -hmm. you know, what they were really trying to do when they founded PayPal was to create a non-state payment mechanism, uh, divorce money from the state um, and make it possible for people around the world to pay each other. So if that sounds a lot like, um, uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, that's because that was what they were intending to do. The issue at the time when they were doing this, you know, in the late 90s, early O's was that, uh, you know, there there wasn't a yet a cryptocurrency protocol. There were a ton of banking regulations that they had to overcome. So, you know, they ended up kind of creating this uh, auction payment system that worked pretty well. And then that got acquired by eBay. But as you note, um, you know, Elon Musk's grandfather was named Joshua N. Haldeman. And he lived in Western Canada and was the head there of the technocracy movement. And the technocracy movement 
um, basically was another one of these responses to the depression that had emerged in the first in the 1920s, but then especially in the 1930s. I think it, it started around 1921, something like that, and, but didn't really get traction until 1930s. And uh, Torstein Veblen, uh, rel- relatively well-known economist, uh, talks about um, conspicuous consumption and stuff like that. Uh, was a champion of this. And basically what it argued was that um, industrial production would kind of outstrip um, uh, the capacity for like the price system to keep up with uh, what was going on in the economy. And so we would end up with all kinds of instability if we didn't convert our monetary system to something that was connected to energy. So the technocracy movement posited that instead of having, you know, like dollars or whatever, you would have energy certificates that would, um, you know, basically assert that they were good for X amount of energy. And then uh, you could exchange those so that, you know, you could basically say this is the amount of energy that went into something. This is what it's worth in terms of energy. So this idea kind of batted around for a while and people were pretty excited about it. And, um, you know, it was seen also as, a, a movement that would lead to the replacement of governments by technical managers, basically saying that scientists and engineers and, you know, perhaps people versed in various other kinds of, you know, social sciences like economics or whatever would uh, be best suited to run the run countries. And so you could basically just eliminate the whole democracy governing you know, uh, legislative kind of model and replace it with one that was basically, um, you know, tied to science, technology and energy certificates. So pretty much, you know, what I like to call today replacing government with Bitcoin and, you know, letting people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, who are, you know, because they have the most money, right, they must be the smartest. So they, they're going to end up running things. Uh, so that's fine. You know, we'll just let them do that. And, um, so that's kind of the, um, uh, you know, m- mindset that was brought to bear. And uh, so the Canadian government saw that as a threat because there was some sense that it was actually a kind of a sympathetic um, philosophy to what Hitler was trying to do in Germany and that it might not be totally on the up and up from a, you know, patriotic standpoint there in Western Canada. So they arrested him. And then subsequently he disavowed that movement, but I think remained you know, enthusiastic about the underlying ideas. Yeah, it's it's strange. Um, you know, and again with that whole um, what did you call it again? The brown shirt, red shirt thing. The red brown alliance. Yeah, red brown alliance. Um, you know, Occupy Wall Street was kind of like, felt like that. I, I think that like I have a pretty good memory. I I wrote a, a commercial for um, Mount Gox. Uh, like 10 years ago and no they fun. were like one of the first bitcoin exchanges I yeah made. and then they rug pulled everybody well i guess that's right i lost my yeah. one bitcoin i had one bitcoin for a hundred dollars like in like 2010 i could be uh you know i could be paying my debt off right now but um you know but it was very left-wing when bitcoin came out it was it was talked about how like the only places that were accepting bitcoin at first were um restaurants in san francisco and vancouver and new york and then all of a sudden, well, it just like yeah. it, it, it. All of a sudden, it, it it felt like overnight it became this like right wing thing. And and I I don't know how that happened. And maybe you well, can, it's kind of it's kind of the left libertarian side of things. So the idea that you know uh, you should be able to you know buy drugs if you want to. So you had things like the Silk Road, um, you know, coming uh, into existence that allowed people to pay for uh, illegal drugs or prostitutes or hire people to murder people. Like it, that was seen as kind of a libertarian left. <laughs> kind of thing. Now, what it ended up, you know, kind of happening, too, is that you you did have a lot of, I would say, right-leaning gold bug type people, like, you know, the sort of musk deal crowd is very much in that tradition and very, very much reactionary against the New Deal. They started to, you know, become, th- those wings kind of started to merge. And so they started to kind of find each other and get together. And that's really what you saw represented in, in a lot of what went down at Occupy. Now, granted, a lot of people saw Occupy as being kind of fundamentally leftist. And what I would say is that it varied quite a bit from city to city. Different cities had different kind of milieus and factions present that were doing different things for different reasons. And um, while it is true that there was a lot of left activity um, at Occupy, there was also a lot of right activity. And, um, you know, really 
bringing together that kind of red brown alliance in real time. So in Los Angeles in particular, that was going on a little bit of it in New York. You had a decent amount of it in Kansas city. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it, it, it was basically the idea of getting those factions, the left and right factions aligned against taking down the 99%. And that's why formulating, you know, we are the, the 90 or taking down the 1%, you know, formulating it as, was we are the 99% was so, clever in terms of bringing together the both the left and the right um because you know 99 percent, sure that includes some of everybody yeah it made me feel at the time for for like the first week i was like i, I didn't know what i was seeing right yeah i'm, I'm in canada and i'm watching to evaluate <laughs> yeah and it's coming through a media filter and everything right and uh the financial crisis had just happened if i recall correctly and that's kind of what spurned it isn't it isn't that like after the banks got their bailout or am i completely messing up the timeline here yeah, it was. It was yeah. the, the bailout was in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, and then the Occupy was in late two thousand eleven. Right. Okay. So, and you know, I, how do you the, the Brown Red Shirt Alliance thing? How are you? How are we able to distinguish what that is from what an organic demonstration of unity is? Like, how do we tell the difference? Well, I think it's a question of intent and, you know, what, what, who's putting money into what. Um, the, the thing that I think people have to recognize is that, you know, it, it isn't just 100% organic and like, you know, just people being, you know, uh, unified around something. I mean, there is some of that, sure. But what you have to think about is that there's been a long history of writing about how you could go about engineering such a thing. Yeah. And so the idea that no one read any of that and that no one's familiar with it and that people who want to engineer society aren't going to use those things is just kind of improbable, <laughs> you know, at, yeah. and at the end of the day, if you go actually listen to what those people who you suspect of doing that actually say, they say, well, actually, I read a lot of Gwynon. I read a lot of Evola, you know, and so they're telling you they're doing this. Right. right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so while, yeah, sure, there's people who are brought into this sort of uh, trap uh, as completely useful idiots and, uh, you know, just totally unaware of, of that engineering there's a whole class of other people that are actually manufacturing this context in which for people people can you know unify together do you remember the good old days when we only had to worry about the fountainhead <laughs> well this is it all kind of goes back to Ayn Rand you know I mean it, it, yeah. it, it that's one element of a lot of this is um, you know her philosophies around uh, you know objectivism and which is really just another word for being obsessed with the gold standard um, you know, anti-taxation, all yeah. of that. And, and, and that's also touched on a lot in this anarchist series. Um, that I, I recommend, I didn't know whether to recommend it or not when it started, but now that they're five, six of the way through it, I can say that it's, it's worth checking out. I wish I remembered the term when I had Chomsky on the first time about what his politics were. It was, it was like, I, I can't remember the term he used, but it was basically a cross between like, uh, you know, a liberal and an anarchist. <laughs> and I was, I was like, how do you reconcile those two positions? You know, and, and he had an answer and I don't remember it because it droned on for a long time, <laughs> but, yeah. but um, I do like him though. I don't, I don't really have an issue with him, but I want to pivot because we have about 12 minutes left or so. And I wanted to talk about religion and see if we can find a way to, to talk about that for a moment and then talk a little bit about what's happening in Canada. Um, because uh, after Roe versus Wade, after the Supreme Court made the ruling um, overturning Roe versus Wade, you know, we had kind of a social panic up here about whether or not abortion would be um, the next thing to, to go if a conservative government was, was elected. Right. So the role that religion plays um, in, in, in all of the backdrop of, of how politics is fused together with business and social issues and things like that, can you give us a little kind of a quick rundown about how that looks in the present day? I know the John Birch Society and then everything that cascaded uh, over the next five, six decades from there, uh, you know, it's a continuation. I understand the way the Republican Party works and, and you know, pledging to be pro-life and things like that. But really, when you when you look behind the curtain, what does the religious power in the United States look like and how much power do they have? Well, I mean, they have quite a lot of power. I mean, there's a ton of groups that are aggregating together, uh, you know, Protestants, uh, Catholics, 
you know, obviously the Catholic far right has an undue uh, influence, outsized influence on uh, the Supreme Court right now, as well as many of the other federal courts. So, uh, you know, the Federalist Society has played a tremendous role, which is basically an organ of Opus Dei, which is, you know, part of the Catholic Church and a personal prelature of the Pope. Um, and so, uh, you know, this notion that, uh, you know, abortion was reversed under the Supreme Court uh, is not terribly surprising, despite the fact that they all said that they weren't going to do that. Um, I would make an argument. Let me, let me just go full cynical here. I think sure. in a lot of ways, uh, religion is only about power. Uh, very few people involved in the practical, uh, you know, implementation of a lot of this stuff are terribly concerned about uh, dogma. There are some that are, obviously, you can find plenty. But uh, think first and foremost about power and how do you control people? How do you get them to mobilize and do things at scale? And religion is just extremely effective at that. Um, so, uh, you know, that is a useful lens for thinking about religion as, as, as a mechanism of power. You know, you think about uh, the family, which is a group that was documented by uh, Jeff Charlotte. Um, and, you know, their, their slogan is Jesus plus nothing. And frankly, Jesus becomes an afterthought because it is just basically like we're getting together because we want to share power. Um, and it doesn't really have anything to do with like, okay, well, first we're going to implement this part of the scripture and then we're going to implement that part of the scripture. The reason why they were going after abortion is because of traditionalism and this idea that they want to reinforce traditionalism and to peel back the gains that a democracy has made against traditionalism. So this subjugates women, it changes their status, it re-implements re this kind of patriarchal hierarchy, monarchy, all of those kinds of archies that uh, you know, these folks want to pursue. And so I think it's, it's almost as simple as that. Now, obviously, you can get into different factions and sects and cults and what they do and what they believe and their weird beliefs and the ins and outs. But it, it fundamentally, all religions manipulate social capital. The ones that do so in ways that are destructive to people tend to function like cults. Cults, uh, you know, uh, destructive cults, uh, you know, have a similar kind of structure and effect. Um, and that's why you see the prevalence of a lot of cults in all of this, too, because for people that don't want to believe in, you know, the blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus guy, they can believe in St. Germain or they can believe in Hinduism yeah. or they can do yoga or whatever the hell they want. And um, whatever works is, is the motto for for people that are manipulating populations for the purposes of intelligence and statecraft. We have one of those cults here uh, and, and they're. They're worldwide. They're in the United States. They originated out of uh, the UK, and their cult, the cult leader, lives in Australia. The the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, right? And uh, you know, I, I've been covering them for two months, and what I'm actually more shocked about, more so than the uh, than the testimonials of the ex members, is the complete lack of interest in the Canadian media to even talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think. Um... Because of the the kind of pernicious left right framing, um, you know, I think that it's very very difficult for editors and writers to propose stuff that that sort of falls outside of that frame. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, we don't write about destructive social groups until after they've already become a problem. You know, there wasn't maybe a lot said about the folks at Waco or, you know, other kinds of cult compounds until, you know, or Heaven's Gate until after the boom, right? So we, in, in security studies, we call that uh, left of boom. You know, you want to get ahead of these things before they happen as opposed to reacting to them afterwards. And so, yeah. you know, newspapers love to write about stuff after the boom because the boom is interesting. The boom sells papers. The boom causes clicks, you know. But uh, if you want to talk about stuff before the boom, uh, you need to have some very thoughtful editors and a, and a pretty, um, uh, you know, I think uh, intelligent readership that's willing to kind of dive into stuff uh, that's complicated and messy and maybe doesn't have a boom attached with it yet. And I think yeah, that's we, what you're up against with this group that you, that you found, which is one that I don't you know, know about, but I know about tons of cult groups. And I'm going to bring this up to my little 
cult study group that I use to make sense of this stuff. You have a cult so study group? That's awesome. Well, I mean, we have basically a, a little group of cult professionals that keep track of different stuff and we share notes all the time. So whenever I come across something uh, awful or weird looking, I can point to them and say, hey, do you guys know about this? And they can either be like, oh, no, that's new to me. Or, yeah, I had say, doctor... oh, yeah, you know, I, I interviewed them in 1989 and, you know, here's everything you need to know about them. So. I had Dr. Yanya Lalich on the show, and she's one of those. Uh, she's an expert in in cults, and she was once part of a cult in the seventies and helped to overthrow the yeah. leader and stuff. A lot of the people that study him now are ex members. Yeah, and it and it's you know it's it's eye opening. One thing that maybe you can talk about with your cult group is that maybe one of the differences is the medium that I'm choosing to ex- expose them. So I'm not dealing with editors at a newspaper and I don't work for a television station, but I'll interview ex-members on this podcast and let them tell me their story and then write an article based on the interview because it's a lot easier doing that than to try to convince someone from a legacy media outlet to publish something, you know? Well, yeah, and I think it is, it's challenging to get, you know, thoughtful, complex stuff into uh, more mainstream channels. I do think that there's a bubble up effect. And I think that the more people that are kind of talking about these things, the more likely that there are, they are to get into more mainstream channels. And that's really what I've been trying to do with my work, you know, as much as possible is to not so much try to get it into, you know, frontline mainstream channels, but like a, a channel like Washington Spectator, the readership of, a, of an outlet like that is like reporters and politicians, mm-hmm. you know? And so then when, then when reporters go to write about this stuff, they go, oh, maybe there's more to this than I thought, you know, or maybe this works differently than maybe I initially thought. And uh, I think that's a place where we can all make some influence. Yeah. I think the last time I saw an American politician have his balls busted over a religious belief or, or, or his views or whatever was, probably Reverend Wright and Obama. Like, I don't think I remember anybody before or after that have been chastised for the religious beliefs, but our former prime minister swore on a cult Bible when he was taking the oath of office. Uh, I just happened to have a picture here when he was uh, elect- reelected in 2011. That's the front row. These are all the people that he shook hands with when he got off the stage after his acceptance speech. And every single one of them are high ranking elders in this cult. And wow. it's so bizarre. It's, it's just bizarre to me that no one seems to care. And like, I'm wondering in, in, in your country, if someone was elected and it turns out they swore on us on uh, the Dianetics book by L Ron Hubbard, and then David Miscavige and all of the other main Scientologist leaders were in the front row. Would it be a story? Well, I mean, I think that there are things like that that, you know, bubble up occasionally. Now, granted, does anybody do anything about it? Like, I don't know. I mean, for instance, um, Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, was uh, in a group called Lifespring. God, she's batshit, isn't she? She's nuts. And she was in a group called Lifespring, which, you know, can become cultish, you know, for certain people, you know, get in too tight. And uh, so she started working with a group called the Cult Awareness Network to try to educate people about, you know, the dangers of cults and stuff, but then started getting more and more involved with, you know, Catholic charismatic groups um, and kind of going back into her old ways, but under a new label, you know. So my friend Steve Hassan, who's, you know, well-recognized cult expert, wrote extensively about that and actually had it picked up in a lot of different places. I mean, you know, NBC News and Washington Post, New York Times, all those kinds of places pick this up. But the question then is, well, what do you do about it? You know, I mean, she's the wife of a Supreme Court justice. Like, she's not really elected to anything. She's not really anybody. But she has a significant influence. And as we've seen, you know, probably had an impact on on January 6th, may have been involved with the Roe versus Wade leak. You know, we just don't know. So it's, uh, it's crazy stuff. And these religious groups, I mean, they do have a big impact on society. And you don't need to, you know, look too far for proof of that. If you look at how intelligence agencies have gone about affecting the course of events in countries for decades and decades and decades, it has been through cult religious groups you look at the moonies that was a creation of the korean cia the korean cia was created by the u.s cia it was all an effort to combat communism in asia you know and use south korea as a bulwark so the way you do that is through religious cult groups so you know nothing new under the sun yeah um what what are you working on now and what, what do you have going on yeah, so, uh, you know, after I published the Paranoia on Parade piece, uh, which took a good bit of time to put together and then also to do the final edits on, uh, I have been doing uh, a lot of research into kind of the New Age uh, movement 
specifically centered around Buckminster Fuller, um, who turns out to be kind of a right libertarian nut in and of itself, in and of himself. Uh, his work actually directly inspired Robert Kiyosaki, who uh, was the rich dad, is the rich dad, poor dad guy. Um, and also he trained Tony Robbins. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki did. So Great. Uh, there's a direct link between Bucky Fuller's stuff and a lot of right-wing extremism right now. And people connected with his legacy are spreading outright disinformation up to and including Russian propaganda and COVID lies. Uh, so I'm working on that as well that as mapping out a never lot Never a dull work. moment, eh, Dave? Uh, there's always something going on with this stuff. Yeah. So... Um, the piece is called Paranoia on Parade, How Gold Bugs, Libertarians, and Religious Extremists Brought America to the Brink. It's in the Washington Spectator, and his name is Dave Troy. Dave, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you coming. Thank you. It was a really enjoyable conversation. All right, man. We'll have you again. Thanks All right. A lot. Sounds good. Okay. Bye-bye. That was really interesting. I, I, you know, I'm guilty of sometimes being a little bit lazy when it comes to, uh, you know, really doing the deep dive into trying to figure out how all the tentacles of religious groups impact politics, especially in the United States, because it's just it's just seen as a given to me so much. But I'm telling you, you guys really need to read this piece. Um, again, it's in the Washington Spectator, Paranoia on Parade, How Gold Bugs, Libertarians and Religious Extremists Brought America to the Brink. His name is Dave Troy. I am so happy that he was able to join us. Uh, I, you know what? I, I'm going to, I'm going to bug him a little bit. I think I'm going to start sending him a little bit more Plymouth brethren stuff to see if, uh, if we can, you know, get our media up here to start listening. If maybe media in the United States, uh, start paying attention a little bit more because there's a couple of things that I have going on in the next three weeks or so, including an ex member of the Plymouth brethren who claims to have evidence and says that hundreds of Plymouth Brethren members were forced to sign non-disclosure agreements. This is all allegedly, uh, as they made uh, and and created dozens of telephone telemarketing rooms to do off-the-books telemarketing calls for the Conservative Party of Canada in the in the preamble to the 2018 election which would be an, uh, obviously a violation of campaign finance law. And then another gentleman who said that uh, he was part of a fraudulent letter-writing campaign to fight against gay marriage, uh, where members of the Brethren would, would write letters and then sign fake names to it to make it seem like thousands and thousands of people were uh, signing petitions against gay marriage. So there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, anyways, and the this week on Black Belt, there's going to be... Uh, this is a crazy week for me. So tomorrow I have... Uh, he's like probably the greatest political cartoonist that we have in this country. His name's Michael Dadder. Uh, so he's on tomorrow. On Wednesday, we have Spenny. I can't bloody well wait for that interview because I love Spencer Rice. He's dope. And then on Thursday, we are going to have a really interesting show. Uh, some of you may have noticed that I got into it a little bit with a colleague here at the network, uh, and I, we were talking about trans women in women's prisons and trans women in sports and things like that. And I don't think it got heated, but other people did. Uh, I have a bad habit of not knowing that sometimes when I'm just typing sentences that I think are quite normal, they come off as go fuck yourself. And I don't really mean to do that, but that's apparently what happens. Um, but uh, we're going to have trans activist Karina Khan on to talk about, and she's a trans woman who uh, who doesn't believe that male-bodied um, individuals should be in play, in spaces that are vulnerable for women. Uh, so this is one of those moments where um, I get to shut up. Uh, you can hold your applause, everybody, and and listen to someone who's directly impacted by this stuff to talk about it. We just happen to share the same opinion, but it probably come. It's off a lot more credible uh, when it's when it's coming from her. Uh, later on, it's a doubleheader on Thursday. I'm going to have John Spencer, who's one of the world's leading experts on urban warfare. And I got something lined up for Friday. It hasn't been confirmed yet, but we're going to uh, we'll announce that as soon as we can. Thank you, everybody, for joining me today. Uh, once again, that was Dave Troy. And um, thank you, Dave, for coming. We'll try to have you back soon. And uh, Oh, there was a couple other things that I wanted to talk about. Um, 
Ashley Lindley and I are going to, uh, I think next week we're going to have, uh, we're going to, we're going to try something different. It's going to be under the blackballed banner for now. Um, we are going to talk to people, individuals, uh, and it was inspired by the heinous cases episode that we did where we talked about Ashley's dad, uh, who was a convicted murderer. And we just sort of unpacked what it was like to grow up like that. And then we both started talking about our own issues and people really responded well to it. So we were, we put our heads together a little bit and we started thinking about what, what we could do as a show to sort of like capture that vibe. And so what we decided to do was invite people onto the show. Uh, you know, they, they don't have to reveal their names and faces. Some of them will, some of them won't to talk about some of the most painful shit that they've ever experienced, whether it's in their childhood or not. And uh, my first, uh, my first guest is a friend of mine from childhood. I'll spare saying his name now in case he chickens out, but um, we're tinkering with a name. And uh, yesterday I, I said to her, I'm like, I, maybe we can call it psych. So P S Y C H. And it stands for please shut your cry hole. And it's an ironic title because we don't actually want you to shut your cry hole. We, we want you to open up your cry hole and, and bear your soul to us. It's going to be an interesting one. I think people are going to like that. Um, so hopefully, uh, you know, we can, we can make people cry and laugh all at the same time. And yeah, so that'll be fun. And so what we're going to do is uh, we'll announce when that's going to happen. And so maybe we'll have an announcement for you by the end of the week, possibly. I'm not sure, but uh, but it's going to be fun. So again, Michael Deadder tomorrow, political cartoonist. We're going to have Spenny on Wednesday, trans activist Karina Cohn on Thursday at 7. And then at 1030 at night, we're going to have John Spencer, who is one of the world's leading experts in urban warfare. So all that should be fun, really light stuff, everybody. Um, but thank you for watching Blackballed, and we'll see you next time. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast. Heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.